This is the very first Sunday in March, and uh, pretty soon we're going to have Easter come about. Um, usually this time of year, it could be an early Easter or a late Easter. I think our Easter is a little later. But about this time of year, churches all over the Southern Baptist Convention start to work on uh, what is called the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering. And uh, churches begin to share with uh, each other, with the church members, the whole purpose of that offering and the meaning of it. Um, and sometimes uh, we just do it and we don't talk much about it. We set a goal. We pray for our home missionaries. But uh, since I'm from Baltimore, I'm not going to talk about me, but I want to talk about Annie Armstrong, <laughs> who is a Baptist from Baltimore. And particularly one of her mottos um, that she had that I think um, is very powerful for us today to understand in the world we live in um, and the circumstances that we're facing, the circumstances that she faced um, and also the circumstances that the Israelites faced way back when. So I think it has um, history to it. It has importance to it. And it has relevance uh, for us today because we're living in a strange time, sometimes difficult times with the things the way they are going. Uh, you may know every year that Southern Baptist churches uh, all over North America give to what is called the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering. But you might ask the question, who is Annie Armstrong? And how did her name come to be associated with uh, this particular offering or even with missions giving. Well, Annie Armstrong was born in 1850, a long time ago. She died in 1938 in Baltimore, Maryland, and she grew up there with her family. Her father, uh, James, Rock, uh, James Armstrong, died uh, when she was only two years old, and her uh, brother died when she was eight, but her mother, Mary, uh, had to take over the family business, and so she used all of her children, including Aunt, uh, Annie, uh, to help. Uh, Annie loved her family, especially her mother, and it really was her mother who depended so much on God and talked about her faith that influenced Annie to consider becoming a Christian. She said once she might become a Christian, but never a Baptist. But that changed later on. Annie came to understand that God was the source of strength of her mother. Even when things looked tough, when things looked impossible, her mother held on to her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Annie saw that. So Annie decided that that testimony, that witness, was a very important thing in her mother's life. And so when she was 19 years old, she gave her life to Jesus Christ uh, becoming a born-again Christian and beginning to serve in her church. Annie uh, apparently would often say that she knew, or I know, uh, I knew when I gave my life to God that I was giving him all of that life. I couldn't give him half of a life. And so she lived out that saying as she served God faithfully. God deserves all of my life, not half of my life. Uh, Annie served for many years uh, as a teacher in her church. She was baptized by Richard Fuller in the Seventh Baptist Church in Baltimore. 
And later in 1871, she joined at the organization of a new mission church, Utah Place Baptist Church, uh, there in, in Baltimore. She taught in the children's Sunday school class for at least 30 years, and she also started there in that church, in Utah Place Baptist Church, an organization of women who helped meet the needs of others. Her very first mission project was to sew clothing for Indian children whose families had been forced to live on the reservation in Oklahoma. So the women of her church sewed 20 outfits. They uh, sent them off and soon received a request in return for 240 more. Annie traveled all over the state of Maryland to begin to organize women into what was called Woman's Mission to Woman, later began to be known as the Woman's uh, Missionary Society, um, Mission Society of Maryland. And um, she began to travel all over the state of Maryland to organize women into groups to work together and to accomplish together what none of them could do alone. And her efforts were successful. These groups began, uh, became known as the Woman's Baptist Home Mission Society of Maryland, which was actually the precursor to the Woman's Missionary Union. Um, and the organization began to cooperate with the Home Mission Board to support missions work, and their motto was, Our Land for Christ. A while ago, I told you I got in trouble once uh, because... The uh, Women's Missionary uh, Union of Maryland had acquired all of Annie Armstrong's furniture, particularly in her office. She became the corresponding secretary, not only for the Maryland Society, but for all of the Southern Baptist Women's Missionary Union. And she would write with uh, handwritten letters, uh, would uh, write to people and, and serve as the uh, corresponding secretary for many, many years without taking any salary. Uh, for the work. So the WMU of Maryland got all of her furniture, including that little desk that she would sit at, and at a camp they owned called Camp Omigo, uh, put together a, a museum and a room where they tried to present her office. And I got past my mother and past the, the thing, you know, to, to go behind and sat in her chair at her desk and got in trouble for that because you weren't supposed to do that. But I did notice one thing on uh, the wall as they presented, to try to present the, in that room, the office that she had was a little plaque and it said, go forward. And I remember asking about it and they said, oh, well, that's her motto, go forward. Oh, really, what does it mean? Well, it comes from Exodus 14 in verse 15 in the King James, it says God said for Moses to tell the Israelites to go forward. And uh, as an adult, I began to look at this verse a little bit more, and people began to tell me, and I read some of the books on Annie Armstrong, and I understood that it went a little bit deeper than just a nice little soundbite or the plaques, you know, that we put up on the wall. Um, she understood the plight of the Israelites to be, in a way, the plight and the circumstances of the Woman's Missionary Union and, quite honestly, the plight that we face today, as I want to share. So this is why I want to share this with you to help you understand that this offering that we take up is not just to throw money at something, but it has a real purpose. 
and a real goal. And um, that's what I want to share. So here's where we go to Exodus chapter 14. And I'd like for you to turn there with me. Um, and in my kind of fashion, I'm not going to read through the whole set of verses all at one time. We're just going to take them section by section and look at them and try to understand the circumstances of, of these verses and what they speak to us as God's word. So first of all, we're going to look at verses 5 through 9, which basically says, as far as the Israelites were concerned, trusting, they were to trust God when it looked like God wasn't in control. So for us today, we need to learn this lesson of how to trust, trust God when it looks like God isn't in control. And everything's going crazy around us, it's chaotic. Things are happening, it seems like evil has the upper hand, and it just... It's just bad. And one of the things that I think that she got from this passage, looking at this, which led her to use the motto, go forward, is the idea that when things look like God isn't in control, we still need to trust him. So let's look in verses uh, 5 through 9 of, of chapter uh, 14 of Exodus. It would be helpful if I found it. Let's go there. Okay. Uh, all right. When the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, what have we done? We have released Israel from serving us. So he got his chariot ready and took his troops with him. He took 600 of the best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt and officers in each one. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out defiantly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army, chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea beside uh, Pi-Hahirot in front of Baal-Saphon. Annie trusted that God was in control even when it looked like he wasn't. Trying to raise uh, money for missions, to raise awareness for the needs of missions, trying to help people come to know Christ Jesus in her country and in her land was a difficult task. And it seemed like God wasn't in control and it was very hard. She wrote a number of letters all the time went different places to speak to people, to speak to women, to help them to begin to serve and work in the cause of evangelism and missions. In the Old Testament, after the 10th plague, when, when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, Pharaoh finally said that they could go. After the Passover and the 10th plague, which killed all the firstborn, Pharaoh said, get out of here. Now, all of the instructions that God had given to Israel was to get them ready through the Passover to bug out. And it looked like God had succeeded. They would get up and run and, and take what they had, and they would begin to move out of Egypt. Then we learn that Pharaoh changes his mind because he's arrogant and proud, and God hardens that. And in verses 5 through 8, we learn that Pharaoh decides to get his choice army, his best army, all of his army, all of his chariots, 
And they were renowned for their ability. Pharaoh in Egypt was uh, known for their military powers, and no one could stand before them. And what happened was that they caught up with the fleeing Israelites in a difficult place. I guess you could say between a rock and a hard place. Because there, in front of them, laid the sea. And behind them was all of Pharaoh's choice army. In fact, all of his army, the choice army in front and all of his army there to take them back into servitude, into bondage, into Egypt. It seemed like God wasn't in control. Maybe he was in control when they got the chance to get out of Egypt, but now all of a sudden things are looking terrible. And the question is, where are you, God? What are you doing? What are you trying to accomplish through this? And it's pretty easy to say, God's not in control here. In the big picture of our nation and in the little picture maybe of our own lives. And sometimes our lives seem to be so much worse than the nation. You know, we're all flustered and trying to handle what the stress and all the things of our life. I used to call my mother up, I still call her now, but I used to when I was younger to call her up and sort of just vent, you know, or talk to her and say how things were terrible in my life and how problems were happening in those kinds of circumstances. And we all need to do that, I guess, sometimes. And uh, maybe, maybe the mothers are the ones to do it to because she'd always listen, you know. But then she'd say, she'd say, Steve, is God still on the throne? I'd say, yeah, Mom, but, but you just don't understand. No, he said, she said, Steve, is God still on his throne? And she'd do that enough times to me where finally I had to admit, well, I don't know what's going on, but I know God is still reigning. He's still on the throne, and I can trust him for that. That's what we have to do when it looks like God isn't in control. We have to trust that he is. And so when Annie Armstrong put up there on her wall, go forward, she was saying, even when it looks like God's not in control, we can trust that he is. Number two, trusting when it looks like God doesn't even have a strategy is very important too, because Annie Armstrong trusted God's strategy even when it looked like he didn't have one. Well, go and tell people about missions. Okay, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And in one of her years, uh, actually 21 days, she uh, traveled 3,300 miles, visited 19 places, and gave 26 addresses to the women to help them start a women's missionary union, a woman's missionary society. Well, God, is that your strategy? What, is, what do you really want us to do? We're not quite sure. We're looking to you, and we don't even see or recognize your strategy. After all, I've got a good strategy. I can tell what God, what God, tell God what he ought to do. I mean, that's what we do sometimes, don't we? I remember telling my uh, fourth grade uh, elementary school teacher what to do, and I got suspended for it for a day. But we love to tell people what to do, but what is God's strategy? What is he trying to say? And sometimes God is very quiet about what he's doing and how he's doing it because we don't actually see the whole big picture. We don't see what's going on in different places as God's preparing us and going to do something. And actually, in all of this, God is going to get tremendous glory. 
And uh, this is his strategy, but we don't see it. So even when it looks like God doesn't have a strategy, we have to trust that he does. How is this going to play out and what's going to take place? Well, in, in the Israelites' case, in verses 10 through 12, we find out that they recognize real quickly that things have gone from bad to worse, and they don't know what's going to happen. In verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites all of a sudden stopped to look up. And they had thought God had made this wonderful escape for them, and they took off, and they kind of did defiantly actually asking their Egyptian neighbors to borrow gold and silver and jewelry because they're going to go out and worship their God, you know, and return, but they weren't going to return. So they're going out to take all this stuff. And the Egyptians, whom they thought were all defeated by God in the 10th plague, are now bearing down on them with heated breath. And they're right behind them. The Israelites were understandably terrified and cried out, as the scripture says, to the Lord for help. Then they said to Moses, and this little statement that they said to Moses in verse 11 is a kind of way of saying, you know what, we think it would have been better back there than it is now. And sometimes we do that. We get to the point where we have a bad situation, but we think we can get forward and God does this and all of a sudden we think it's even worse than before. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? So what he's saying here, all the cemeteries are full in Egypt, so we have to go out here and die in the wilderness. Right, Moses? That's what they're saying to him, a little bit sarcastically. What have you done to us by bringing us uh, out of Egypt? They weren't too happy about that. In fact, the response is not positive. Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? We told you, we told you, we told you so. Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Sometimes our life gets that way. It, it goes from bad to worse, and we think, God, what are you doing? You don't have a strategy for us? What are we supposed to do? We thought you had your hand on this. You know, everything's doing really great in our life, no problems, and under, all of a sudden it rains and it pours and... Two and three and four things happen, and we're saying, God, what are you doing? What's your strategy? Oh, it would have been better to go and do something else. We're back to where we were. Ugh. And we just get frustrated. It would have been better if we'd gone and died in Egypt and serving them rather than die out here in the wilderness. Well, trusting God when it looks like he doesn't even have a strategy, it's not easy to do. Annie Armstrong did that. She understood that God said go forward. It meant to trust him, even though going forward would have been difficult, as we're going to find out. She still realized that he was on, in control on the throne. And even though we can't see the strategy, he still has one. And that's what God calls us to do as well. The trust in Jesus Christ. He has our life in his hands and he's not going to do anything to us he's not a nasty god he's not an evil god he doesn't get his jollies out of teasing us or making us suffer god loves us so much so completely that after he created us and we sinned against him he gave his own son i mean he gave jesus the ability to come as a human and god and die on the cross for our sins 
such a wonderful salvation? Do you think this is the kind of God that doesn't have a strategy or is busy doing something else and forgotten you? On the Mount of Carmel, and Elijah was there, he was teasing the people who, who worshipped Baal by telling them that Baal had to go take, you know, go somewhere, and he wasn't, they weren't paying, he wasn't paying attention to you. So the priests of Baal are trying to get the water to come, uh, the fire to come down and eat up the altar. And it's like, well, Baal, maybe he's asleep or he's taking a vacation, you know. But our God is that kind of God. He's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year God. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. He's always there for us. And we have to learn to trust him even if we can't discern or it seems like he doesn't have a strategy. Actually, this is the best strategy of all. What happens when you're between a rock and a hard place? Something's got to give. And this is what God says. Thirdly, trusting God. We need to trust God that God would make a way even when it looks like there isn't one. Because see, that's what God is in the business of doing. When everything seems to be terrible and impossible, God makes the possible possible. And he, he does that. Annie Armstrong knew that. She trusted God that he would make a way for her, just her. And remember, this is at a time period when women didn't do all these kinds of things in the 1880s, 1890s, uh, when, when ministers were very cautious to even allow a woman up on the pulpit, right? And uh, women aren't supposed to usurp their position in their household. But how would they even be able to raise money, to give money to people, uh, to serve, to help the message of God's gospel go out to not only uh, the new places in the nation, but uh, to the immigrants and to the homeless and the people who needed to hear the gospel message? She trusted that God would make a way through her work, and she worked hard and was dedicated to writing and encouraging people. She never accepted a salary for her work, and she served the Woman's Missionary Union for over 18 years as it was begun and founded. This is interesting here for the Israelites as we go back to them and understand Moses, Moses and, and what he's supposed to say. So God, in verse 13, Moses calls up to God, or first, I'm sorry, to the people, and he says, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see. Those are three commands, three imperatives. Don't fear. Stand firm and see. And, and what are they supposed to see? They're going to see how God is going to make a way out of this predicament, out of this problem. And, and he says to them, listen, the Lord is going to show you his salvation. He's going to accomplish it. And the Egyptians you see now, uh, you're never going to see again. The Moses thought he was going to all of a sudden, God was going to fight against the Egyptians, which he kind of does. But Moses thinks that, that God's going to turn his attention. He says, you won't see those um, Egyptians any longer. And, and they won't. But the Lord, in verse 14, will fight for you. So you will be silent. There's an interesting thing about part of this verse. Either it means just shut up and be quiet. Or you must be quiet, or just it may also mean that the Lord's going to fight for you and you can be silent. You can keep quiet because you won't even have to fight. So there's a different way of looking at it. In other words, God's going to do all your work for you. 
He's going to get you out of this situation and you don't even have to do anything. And sometimes that's very hard for us because we think we should do things for God. We should accomplish God's work. And when we're between a rock and a hard place, maybe it's better just to trust him and to let him do his strategy and to let him guide us. Well, Moses said that to the children of Israel, don't fear and stand firm and, and be quiet because the Lord will fight for you. Now, God weighs in on this. And in verse 15, the Lord says to Moses, and this is the verse that Annie Armstrong picked up as her motto and put on the plaque that I saw when I sat in Annie Armstrong's desk chair, which I wasn't supposed to sit in, but I saw the plaque and it was there and it said, go forward. The Lord said to Moses, verse 15, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. Now that's the King James Version, but the uh, Christian Standard Bible says, tell the people of the Israelites to break camp. And this word actually means to pull up your tent pegs, to get ready and to get prepared and then move out on your journey. You know, you're not stopping here. This isn't place to stop. But that's so crazy for God to say that. Where are they going to go? In front of them is the sea, and behind them are all the Egyptians. Where are they supposed to go? That's a, a crazy strategy. But God says to Moses, tell them to bug out. Well, where are they going to bug out to? Where are they going to go? God is going to make a way even when we don't see the way. Then he turns to Moses and he says, okay, Moses, as for you, and this is very clear in the text that we have in the Hebrew, he's saying, tell the people this. Now, as for you, Moses, this is what I want you to do. I want you, in verse 16, to lift your staff. You know, what staff? Well, the one I gave you that you threw down in front of uh, Pharaoh and it became a snake. All the different things, the one... That you're, you've got that's, that's the rod, the staff that I gave you. I want you to lift it up and to stretch out your hand over the sea. And you, or it seems to imply, you by doing that will divide the sea so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Now it's important, it says on dry ground. You know, God didn't tell them in their preparation to make sure they take a life jacket. And there was no call for pontoon boats or oars. They're going to go across that sea. The way that God is going to make is going to be amazing, a miracle. They're going to go across on dry ground. Later, when the Israelites are on the plains of Moab, God parts the Jordan River at flood stage, and the Israelites cross over on dry ground. It's, it's not insignificant that this is mentioned. It's supposed to be able to say, I'm not going to take you back to fight the Egyptians. You're not going back to Egypt. You are going to go forward. What are you going to go forward? It's impossible. It's the Red Sea. I, we can't swim we didn't bring any boats. We, we don't have any preparations, but God is saying, Moses, you just hold your hand up and this is going to depart. This is going to part and you are going to walk through on dry ground. That was amazing because God didn't make a halfway, one that's sort of okay. 
He wasn't even going to fight the Egyptians right then and there. Somebody could say, oh, that was just a fluke. You know, the wind came up or the tornado came or whatever, and the Egyptians were all wiped out. That could just be coincidence. But God said, hold up your staff, and it will divide, and they will go through on dry ground. Then he says, as for me, so God is going to tell them this, as for me in verse 17... I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians. So you know what? They're going to chase you. Oh, what do you mean they're going to chase? We want to get out of here, but they're going to chase us? Yeah, they're going to chase you. Harden the Egyptians so they will go in after them, and I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army, and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and the horsemen. Well, we learn then that the angel of God, uh, the angel of the Lord put himself in between the Egyptians and the uh, Israelites and they couldn't see him. And Moses reached up his hand and the staff and the waters parted and they took their time and they got across. And then the Egyptians came in and the waters came back and the Egyptian army was destroyed. Now, it would be clear that there was no other way done than by God himself. And God brought a way for their salvation. And in doing so, God got the honor and the glory by saying, look, the, the Egyptians think they're pretty tough stuff. I'm bigger than them. No matter what they think they can do, I can do better and I can destroy them. And this is the great salvation that you will have. You will need to remember this as one of those cases where when you couldn't even see what way would God would do, then you, but you trusted him, and God was able to make a way when it seemed like it was impossible. God did that. That's why I think Annie Armstrong had on her wall, in front of her desk, where anybody sitting at that desk could see those two words go forward. Go forward in the name of Christ. Go forward in service to him. Even when it seems to be impossible to go forward, we need to go forward because we need to trust that we have a servant God, that we have a God who will make a way for us even when there seems to be no way forward. Annie Armstrong's work with missions continued to grow she began to see needs that no one else saw, and she always set out to meet those needs in the best way possible, always trusting that God would make a way for her. She realized that people could not meet needs if they didn't know about the needs, so she organized a reading room for people to come in, and people from all over the state of Maryland could come and read about missions work in America and learn the needs of the missionaries, Annie began to write articles in the various uh, Baptist papers encouraging them to consider the work of missions, to determine what those needs were, and then to ask God to make a way to meet those needs. That they would ask the Lord how to help the missionaries in doing their mission work. Annie wasn't content to represent just the people of Maryland. The women in Maryland on May 14, 1888, the Women's Missionary Union of the Southern Baptist Convention was formed, and Annie was asked to be the first corresponding secretary. 
she had always been active in working with immigrants in Maryland, and she realized that God had two ways to save the world. One is to send missionaries to people in other countries who do not know Jesus, and the other was to send people of other countries to America, immigrants who would come and hear the gospel message. Um, as more and more immigrants uh, arrived, more missionaries were needed in America to help spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, in 1888, the, uh, the, the uh, head of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, asked Annie to handwrite letters to all of the various societies um, who were now being uh, raised all over the uh, world of the Southern Baptists, women's missionary unions and individual churches, to write to these churches um, asking that they might uh, consider donating money to the very first uh, Christmas offering. That very first Christmas offering was conducted in 1888, and it raised $2,833.49, and they did so, and they sent the money to, guess who? Lottie Moon. That was Annie's decision or uh, advice, and they sent that money to Lottie Moon in China. She had people uh, in churches uh, raising money for missionaries, and that became a special assignment. She encouraged the churches to put together a mite box, M-I-T-E, you know, the widow's mite, and to try to give a couple of pennies uh, each week and put them in the mite box, and she encouraged others to give. And because of this, the very first Christmas offering in 1888 was sent to Lottie Moon. Now, you know Lottie Moon's name. She's a missionary in China, and we uh, serve by giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering every year. The Lottie Moon Christmas offering is taken up at Christmas, and it goes to help fund foreign missions, missionaries who go overseas. The, um, uh, after the work of Annie Armstrong and the fact that she was doing what God called her to do, when she retired, the Home Missions uh, Board at that time, now called the, uh, the North American Mission Board, um, decided to name the Easter offering in, in honor of Annie Armstrong. And today we take up that Easter offering in honor of what Annie Armstrong did. We'll be setting a goal for our Annie Armstrong Easter offering and be asking you to pray about your gift as you give. All of that money will go to support the home missionaries that we have here in the United States and North America and the work that's being done in sharing the gospel message. Now we want you to understand as we follow Annie's example um, and she gave of her own time and her own, uh, of herself and her own money, that we decide to give a gift to the Annie Armstrong offering that will help people in our United States and in Canada to come to know Christ Jesus as Lord in the North America uh, continent. And we ask that you'll pray about it. Now, this money is not your regular offering. You gotta remember that. We need to support the work of the church. We don't decide all of a sudden to give our tithe and a regular offering to Annie Armstrong and be done with it. No, we need to keep that as supporting the work of the church. But this is over and above what 
God is calling us to do. And so we need to pray about that. Now, you may want to do the widow's mite box where you start putting some money. Maybe you decide not to drink one of those, I call them frou-frou coffees, you know. But you may want to put a little bit of money in that box over time. That's why we're doing this a little early. Put it in over time so that we could give that money to Annie Armstrong or work on your budget, see what can be done. You might say, well, there's no way, there's no way. Well, God makes a way when it doesn't seem like it's possible and we can trust that God will make a way for even our small church to have a worldwide impact, not only through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, but through the North American Mission Board as we give to the Annie Armstrong offering as well. What we can do is trust that God uh, is still in control, that, that God does indeed have a strategy, even though it doesn't seem like it at times, when we let our own views and problems come into our focus, self-centered, you know, self-centered way. But when we look to God, he has a strategy, and his strategy is shown to us in giving his son Jesus to die on the cross. And then we need to trust God that even though it seems like there's no way possible, God can still make a way. And you know what? He doesn't do a little bit of a job. He really does it to where he gets tremendous honor and glory. Thinking about that, he could have wiped out the Egyptians right then and there, but he wanted them to part the sea, Moses to part the sea, have the Israelites escape through that, and then have the waters come back on the Egyptians, and they would recognize that God was the creator God of the universe, that Israel's God was different, it was special, he was the God that they worshiped. I will pray that you will do that, and I will do that myself, and we'll seek to serve the Lord Jesus as we as a church together go forward in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our hymn of invitation this morning is hymn number 54. I'll ask our musicians to come forward. Great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful to us. I pray that we will be faithful to him to serve him. If you need to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've never asked him into your heart, then we challenge you to let us share what it means to know him. If you're looking for some place of service, and as the Lord leads you, we we invite you to consider our church that we might be faithful together in serving him. Let's stand and sing, Great is thy faithfulness.